Hello everyone, I'm Kate Bullen-Casanova and welcome to the Future Feminist Podcast. This is the space for conversations with parents, teachers, friends and extended families in all their diversities. This week I chat with Liz Kleinrock, who you may know from Instagram as Teach and Transform. Since recording this episode nearly two weeks ago, her TED Talk has now topped one million listeners. After having this conversation with her, it's not difficult to see why. She is a natural-born speaker and educator about these issues of equity and social justice. We spoke about her journey to teaching, her work as the diversity coordinator for her school, and how she navigates the relationships with families of her students, especially when they may have different values on a topic. It takes a village to raise a feminist child, so welcome to the village. Enjoy. Hello, Liz. Welcome to the Future Feminist Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. All the way from Australia. So exciting. <laughs> yes, it was quite difficult to organise the time because I was like, okay, which time zone are you in? Which time zone are I in? And it's just like, oh. Um, but I'm glad that we finally found a time that worked for both of us. Yes, so could you please start by introducing yourself? My name is Liz Kleinrock. I am an educator based in Los Angeles, California. Um, my work has been particularly around um, equity and social justice, um, really breaking down seemingly divisive and taboo topics with students. Um, and a lot of my work these days has shifted towards educator and adult education as well. Thank you. Um, I, yeah, I found you through your Instagram, which is Teach and Transform, and I will definitely obviously be linking that in the show notes, um, where your Instagram just kind of exploded, and now you're up to nearly like 30,000 followers. So I think we'll get into that as well, because I want to ask you about using Instagram as a tool for change as well. Um, I think maybe where I want to start from is why? How? What was this? Was there a particular, that's a big question, but was there a particular spark or something? Did you always know that you were going to go into teaching and this kind of thing? No, definitely not. Um, it's, it's funny. My dad likes to bring this up because we maybe like 12 and we were having dinner on vacation and I made a list of all the jobs that I wanted to maybe have when I grew up. And I'll just tell you now, like teaching was definitely not on that list. It had things like professional soccer player and like concert flautist and things like, like totally random things that no a teacher was not. on. I definitely did not know that this was going to be in the cards for me. Um, something that I kind of fell into in college. Um, I volunteered uh, with an after-school tutoring organization. My college roommates um, helped organize uh, this nonprofit work. We went to go do art projects with kids after school, and I just really enjoyed it. Um, I managed to tack on an education minor my senior year and then got a job teaching through AmeriCorps out in Oakland and just kind of fell in love with it. It's the only job I've ever had out of college and still doing it to this day um, I find it exhausting but incredibly rewarding and it's a lot of fun so you've got a lot of experience with various different age ranges haven't you from k to 12 oh I've taught first through fifth grades but uh, oh I think I saw that you've done some you've done a lot of curriculum building for like a wide yes that's right okay so what age group are you teaching at the moment 
Um, at the moment, I co-teach a third grade class. So I'm actually in the classroom three days a week. I have a co-teacher who's there the other two days. Um, and the two days that I'm out, I am my school's diversity coordinator. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think maybe we'll just start with a talk, which is very exciting. It's just gone up a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. And, and now I checked this morning and it's already up to more than 800,000 views. Could you tell us a little bit about the TED conference where you were speaking at? So it was titled Education Everywhere, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a really amazing opportunity. They contacted me after this poster I did about consent with my class went viral in like October um, this past year. Um, so uh, I was one of six speakers and everybody was addressing education in through a different lens. Um, the people I was with were absolutely amazing. Like I wish I could have been in the audience for the whole thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just feel really privileged to have been a part of that. And it's, you know, very gratifying that this work has resonated with so many people. It's absolutely, it's absolutely fantastic. I wanted more. I think it's only about 12 minutes and I was like, keep going, please keep going. Um, so I think it was titled how to teach, is it gone? how to teach kids about taboo topics. And you begin the talk by kind of giving a bit of context to a discussion with racism about some of your students, nine and 10 year olds, and something that a student who we've called Abby had said, um, Obviously, people will go and watch the TED Talk immediately after listening to this podcast, but it maybe if you could just give us like a brief snapshot of what that um, situation was. Um, yeah, so we were starting, I was teaching fourth grade, so my students were a year, uh, a year or two older than my current class. Um, and when we start new units, pretty much about anything, I like to begin by doing these charts are called KWL charts. Um, you divide them into three sections. Like, what do you know about a topic? What do you want to know? What have you learned? And then you like compile your understandings throughout the lesson or the units. Um, and so we were listing questions that we had about race. And one of my kids asked, um, why are some people racist? And the student uh, volunteered her answer maybe some people don't like black people because their skin is the color of poop. Um, as you can imagine, that was not the most comfortable situation, um, but rather than panicking or just yelling at her, tried to turn it into this teachable moment that would spark a conversation about why people have had racist tendencies and what's the purpose of discussing racism in schools. It's to educate ourselves to understand why these things are harmful and to make sure they don't happen again, but also to give kids the language to be able to hold a conversation about race rather than them growing up to be all those people who are, you know, leaving nasty comments for each other on the comment section of newspaper articles. You know, I want my kids to grow up to be literate in these topics and to be able to engage rather than just yelling. Yeah, I really liked what you said was the first step towards these kinds of conversations is about building a common language so that um, there's like a bank of definitions that kids know that they're talking about, that everybody's on the same page. 
Um, and I really liked what you said about when you're talking about equity with kids, you're not telling them what to think. You're giving them tools and resources to learn how to think. Um, because I think this is one of these conversations that I've seen come up, certainly in the Australian media, in terms of people, particularly left-leaning people, are accused of having agendas in schools and teaching kids about things that they are too young for or that kind of thing. Um, and I'm wondering if you've come up with, though, what situations you've come up against with people questioning an agenda of an issue that you might be talking about with your kids? I would say that a way that I try to be very careful about that because I don't want to be the teacher just standing up in front of the class, like giving them their own opinions and beliefs, is to really try to guide a lot of these students through an inquiry process. Um, like I mentioned, letting kids ask questions and oftentimes their questions are really what drive our study are understanding, like, okay, these are the things that we're coming in knowing and understanding already, and these are wonderings that we still have about this topic or about this issue. So in my role, it's more of a facilitator rather than, you know, um, you know that analogy about teachers are there to, like, fill their students' empty heads with knowledge. Like, that's not the case at all. Yeah. Kids are coming in with so much knowledge and understanding. Um, like in one of my classes, we were doing a, a lesson about people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. It's a huge problem here. <clears throat> and I had a kid who would routinely say, well, my parents say that people are homeless because they're lazy and they should just get jobs. And I think teachers and people like my students in those situations would yell at them and say like, you know, that's not nice. That's like really mean. That's not true. But I would rather ask them, you know, that's really interesting. I'm curious why you think that. And to really have them walk through that process to understand like, okay, like where are, you know, your biases coming from? Like what information have you been given? How are you processing it? And I'm not telling you it's right or it's wrong, but then let's look at you know, information from lots of different perspectives and see, do you still feel the same way afterwards or do you feel differently? In that kind of situation where someone says about, oh, well, my mum says this, um, and, you know, this is also one of the things that you talk about in your TED Talk is that it's such a minefield teaching the such a minefield teaching these kinds of topics because what happens when parents or families have different opinions um, to to you on this kind of thing? Um, I'm wondering what you know how how that situation can be resolved from from a teacher's point of view if you know that a family has got different opinions on something about you. How do you go about resolving that? if you have to have an ongoing relationship with the child and the family throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, you can always do things to be proactive. I find that in the past I've had a very small number of families voice concerns, but interestingly, they've all had the same concern and it's all been about um, gender expression um, and ah. perspectives and in all the cases, the families are coming from a more religious background. And 
I think for certain cases, like it's really important to understand why parents might have concerns. Like if you understand where the concern's coming from, you can better address it and create transparency and trust. Um, but I've also found like with certain types of conversations and beliefs, like you might just not see eye to eye and there just might not be closure in those situations. And as frustrating as that might feel, sometimes that's just the way it is. Like if people come in, if parents are coming in saying, you know, we believe this about our religion, I know that I'm already fighting an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. I present it from a lens of equity and inclusion and representation and the fact that there are students and staff members and families in our communities who identify as LGBTQ. And it's really about providing support for all families and all kids to feel seen and respected in school. You know, from a, a teacher standpoint, that is what I can say and that is what I can do. Um, I've had families say, well, I would like my kid to not be included, you know, the parent is the parent and I might walk away feeling really frustrated, but you know, in those cases also like, well, we already read the book. So (laughs) too late. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I guess in that kind of situation, you know, the child is literally getting opinion, lots of different opinions and that's good. That's good for them anyway, because they've got your, they've got the classroom and their peers and then they've also got the families and you know, they'll just, they'll kind of make up their own mind in the end. I'm wondering if at the beginning of an academic year, when you get a brand new cohort of students, what are the kinds of processes that you go through to get to know all the kids and know all their families and things like that so that you've kind of got a picture in your head of what kind of group you're working with that year? Yeah, um, I try to do a lot of outreach at the beginning of the school year. Um, I have pretty extensive survey that I send to families to just try to collect some information about kids' interests, about, you know, access to technology, you know, what was their last school year like, um, as much information as I can gain from their families and parents and caregivers, but also how families respond to those questions also tells me a lot about how they communicate and what um, types of engagement or baggage that they might be coming to school with like one of my favorite questions to ask parents and caregivers is talk about what third grade was like for you when you were a kid and I have had some adults write like an essay about I had this teacher and like they were so mean to me and I felt this way and I just felt really unsuccessful and those answers are so telling um And I think like the more information you can get like that, the better. It just gives me the snapshot of where families are are coming from. And the same thing with students. Um, We do a lot of like identity mapping and sharing about who we are and our interests outside of school. Um, In the past, like when I taught young kids, we did like a bio bag where you like brought in a certain number of objects or pictures um, to represent who you are. Um, These days I like, like book introduction so it can, the kids bring in a book that means something to them or reflects them in a certain way and they talk about it and write about it um that way I kind of get this little snapshot of like all of my kids in the first couple of days um but I think a really big part of it is also for teachers like being able and willing to share who you are with your students 
like if I'm going to have them do an introductory project, like I'm also going to do it. I want them to know me as a person, like as a human. Because when I was a kid, I assumed that my teachers like lived at school. And if I saw them in the studio, yeah. <laughs> they were weird and really confusing. Um, and like when my family in town, they come visit my class. Like every single class I've had has met my parents. Um, you know, my classes for the past years have met my partner. Like there are things about my life that I really want to be able to share with them. So they actually know me for who I am too. And hopefully that builds that mutual trust and respect. So important. I just, this is these surveys that you do at the beginning of the year. This is not something that's prescribed by the school or anything like that. This is just something that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a few other teachers that I follow on Instagram. Um, I believe her name is Asmahan. Her handle used to be Teaching with Sugar and Spice. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I remember her uploading, a, um, taking a picture of a form on her Instagram stories that she was giving out to her families to fill out. And one of the questions on there was, like, asking what religious festivals your child like you as a family celebrate so that they can be included in the classroom and I really loved that and I'm wondering between you and Asmahan and other teachers in this kind of anti-bias education sector do you think that education as a whole is moving forward in this kind of direction or do you think it's really just depends on like what kind of teacher you get like what do you your what kind of teacher your child gets what what do you think I live and teach in Los Angeles California which is one of the most you know liberal progressive places in the United States um but I do see trends overall at least gravitating towards things like social emotional learning which I think is a step in that direction um I see more requests for um, teachers and schools about curriculum and resources when tackling issues around equity or inclusion or diversity. I think the visibility of a lot of these issues in the media has made people realize we need to start younger. We need to start with children because they're already having these questions and these conversations. And um Oftentimes schools, you know, are just microcosms of the community at large. And so if you're having, you know, for example, racial issues play out in your community, chances are they're coming up in school as well. Um, I have done some consulting and workshop works in very conservative areas. Like there are places in the States that are still struggling to desegregate their schools and their curriculum. And then, you know, there are schools like mine who are like, how can we weave equity into like everything that we do all day long. So it's definitely a spectrum and there are some places that are a lot further along than others. But I think, you know, even the places that are doing a lot of this great work still have a long ways to go. Like there isn't a finish line that you cross and then it's all over, you know? So I've got a three-year-old and a two-year-old and my eldest, Eleanor, is we're kind of thinking about what kind of area we live in. And, you know, we actually moved to a new city last year. And one of the reasons why we moved was because we wanted to live in certain kind of, we wanted to live in a more progressive area because we know that that affects the schools and things like that. But perhaps 
for families or parents that do find themselves with a school or a teacher that isn't as far along in their in this kind of journey, what are some ways that you might suggest that parents can approach their child's teacher and ask about these kinds of things? I think just like what you said, asking is a really great place to start. Um, I think in any situation, going in from a place of curiosity and seeking to understand is going to set you up for success compared to if you walk in like with a very, you know, accusatory uh, (laughs) (laughs) approach. Um, I would suggest like, for example, I got a question emailed to me a couple of days ago um, from a parent I've never met before who was concerned that her child is a as a child of color in a predominantly white school and the school hadn't even acknowledged Black History Month, which is February in the United States. Um, and I suggested going to the school and setting up a meeting with either the teacher, probably starting with the teacher and then administration and saying, hey, so I noticed that the school isn't doing anything for Black History Month. There haven't been any particular lessons or activities or books or anything And I'm just curious why you made that decision. And I'm also curious what you are doing to support your students of color. So just asking those questions, I think, really sheds light on those types of gaps that might be present, but also place the accountability on the leadership of the community. Say, hey, I'm bringing to your attention something that I think is missing. And I'm curious what your thoughts are and what you're planning to do about it, rather than storming in and saying, not doing this, you're not doing that, you know, answer to me. Um, But coming from a place, like I said, of understanding and then having follow-up questions saying, okay, well, um, it seems like this wasn't something that really appeared to be a high priority for you. I'm curious how you might think that reflects upon your students of color and your families of color. And I'm wondering if you know much about the data that shows to support that representation has a really strong impact on how comfortable and secure students of color feel in school, um, you know, and really trying to lead from those places of understanding. Yeah, I really love that. That asking the question, "What have you? What plans have you got in place to support students of color?" And because maybe they've got something in the works. Um, you know, we don't have. I don't think Black History Month is really celebrated in Australia, um, but there are, you know, kind of key points throughout the year in terms of NAIDOC week celebrating our Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, And so a lot of schools and community organisations do things around that. So, um, you know, even in the couple of months leading up to it, going perhaps something that parents can do is going, okay, so NAIDOC's coming up, so what are your plans? And if there aren't any plans, can I get involved? There's actually another video that I saw that I think I'm definitely going to link in the show notes because I loved it. And you'll know exactly which one I'm about to say. Um, Miss Liz's Allies. (laughs) I, I absolutely loved it. And I just, I think it's one thing for like adults and parents and teachers to have all these kinds of discussions, but actually hearing it from the mouths of those students um, like eight and nine year olds in the video, that was that was another thing. 
because I think back to myself at that age and I'm like, I definitely did not have, I was, I'm sure I would have been capable, but I definitely did not have that language. Could you tell us perhaps how did that, how did that video come to be? Sure. Oh man. And when I got the TED talk offer, I was just like, I just wish I could bring students and be like, you should just be on stage and talk and, you know, hopefully the work will just speak for itself. Um, my kids are amazing. Um, so that video was taken two years ago. I was teaching fourth grade. Um, it was just after the 2016 election. Um, and say like LA is a very liberal leading city. My students were not particularly thrilled with the outcome of the election. Um, and a lot of the other things that had been happening in the media, especially um, the language around immigrants, found women, um, things that our current president has said about um, historically marginalized groups of people. And I think that there's this big uh, feeling of frustration that can happen if you're a kid or if you're just a citizen. Um, this feeling of helplessness and wanting to do something and take action and not really know what kind of an impact you can make if you're just nine or 10 years old. Um, so I came up with this unit um, that went hand in hand with uh, a reader's workshop unit we were doing on Number of the Stars, which is a book about this Danish family who helps their um, one of their friend's daughters who's Jewish escape um, during the Holocaust and came up with this unit about what does it mean to be an ally, what does it mean to advocate for others? And what does it also mean to be a bystander? Um, and how can you move from like a bystander mentality to one of advocating and, you know, speaking up for and helping other people? Um, now, it's so funny, like, our language changes so much. I think if I could go back and redo it, I would nix the word ally and put in the word accomplice instead, this idea of like, you know, even giving up like your own actions in order to work for and work with other people. Um, so I wanted to empower my students. Um, I wanted them to examine ways that people had used their privilege in the past, um, even if it came at great risk to them, in order to speak up and help others. So we looked at different historical cases. We looked at Danish citizens. Um, it's the country of Denmark helped so many Jewish people escape during the Holocaust. Um, they didn't have to. Like, you know, it was something they just, they knew it was the right thing to do. Um, we studied um, white abolitionists um, during times when enslavement was legal in the United States, um, people who helped um, enslaved people escape to the north or cross the border. And then we looked at modern day examples where people across different subgroups or identities stood up for each other. We looked at even kids who had taught each other American Sign Language to support deaf classmates and um, Jewish and Christian communities coming together to lift up, um, you know, Muslim communities where their you know, neighborhood mosque had been defaced and things like that. And then looked at our own school community and thinking about what can we as students and individuals do to make our school a more you know, inclusive and welcoming place for everybody. So the team over at Fluid, they actually came in and just filmed this filmed this lesson while you were teaching this and reading the book. And it was great to see so many kids talking about this one child who says that they used to be a bystander because they thought that it didn't involve them. 
but then they realized that um they, they thought it like it thought it wasn't their business and that's one of the phrases that um I think you use in the video as well and then they something happened and they learned that they needed to stand up for this other person even when it wasn't didn't directly affect them and it was so great hearing the kids explain the difference between ally advocate and bystander and I was like I would not have known what those words meant at that age and it's so good to see the kids that like you said standing up for each other across different um different intersections but what I'm wondering is has there been a situation in the classroom where perhaps you're talking about like gender stereotyping um, and your great whiteboard that you've got about um, the stereotypes for, for gender, for genders? I'm wondering if there may have been an example where you're talking about one particular thing and then like an intersecting issue has come up in the classroom, for example, talking about gender and then, you know, actually the topic of white feminism has come up and how do you kind of stay on track with the lesson, but also like explaining that all of these things are interconnected? Wow, that's a good question. I haven't had an example like the one um, you just gave, but I found with certain students who are perhaps more aware of current events will always ask questions about topics that mm. might not have planned on bringing up. Um, I might not be planning to bring them up in class. Right. Um, but then they say it and it's like, oh man, okay, I guess this is like a thing now. I think I do my very best to validate their questions. And if I can in the moment, absolutely address them and tie them into the broader conversation. If it's something um, that I think might be better served to have like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that student so they still feel validated and asking it and their questions still gets addressed, but maybe I don't think it's like as appropriate for the entire class, um, mm. you know, that's always an option. I think in those situations, a lot of time, like kids, you know, want to be heard and acknowledged and sometimes it matters how you do that. But I find that even if you can just, you know, say you know, that seems like a great conversation for us to have separately later. Why don't you hang back for a minute? Like when we go to recess and then we can discuss that. Um, we read a book uh, recently about Sonia Sotomayor, one of our Supreme Court justices, and it talks about how she grew up in the projects. And one of my kids is like, what's the projects? And another one of my kids is like, I know. And he went on this um, mini tangent about what he knew about housing projects um, in the United States. And I would say like half of what he was saying was correct and about half of it was not. Mm. So then it's this tricky balance of validating the factual information, but also being really clear to dispel any misinformation because that, um, you know, it's just like a tricky, it's a tricky balance sometimes. Fine, a fine balance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just moving out of the classroom, like in a broader, in a broader sense, um, I also saw that you are on the advisory board for teaching tolerance. Um, and I hadn't heard, I mean, I guess they're an American organization. I hadn't heard of them. And so I went on their website and it was 
so amazing. And I think that definitely more parents need to know about this, even not in America, because, you know, I'm sure that there must be something like this that exists in Australia and I want to get involved with it. Could you tell us a little bit about teaching tolerance and how you came to be involved in that? Yes, absolutely. So teaching tolerance is a phenomenal organization. Um, they are the education branch of the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, which is an amazing again, organization based in Montgomery, Alabama that was started in like the 70s or so um, and spends most of its time fighting hate groups, hate speech, protecting civil rights and civil um, liberties in the United States. And Teaching Tolerance um, aims to advocate for social justice and equity and inclusion in schools and also provide teachers, administrators, school leaders, families with curriculum, lessons, resources, and trainings to support them and their students. Um, so I got involved with them. I've been using their materials for like years. And then one of my friends, um, Karen Schreiner, who is amazing, won their award for excellence in teaching in 2016 and then nominated me for the award last year. And I won. So I was their, one of their 2018 recipients. Um, with a few other teachers who are all like amazing individuals and doing such incredible work in their schools. Like everyone in the Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> everyone in the organization is amazing and is doing such incredible work like all over the country. Um, and so I can participate in their advisory board meetings, um, which are held in the summers in Alabama. And it's just, it's an amazing organization the people who are in it are just so dedicated to making this work accessible um, for teachers everywhere. Like it's, I feel so lucky and so privileged to be a part of it. You mentioned at the very beginning of our chat that you were also the diversity coordinator for your school. And so you said that that was three days in the classroom and then two days in this diversity coordinator role. And I'm wondering what, like, what's the day in the life of that kind of role? Um, do all do all schools have it, or is that just something that your school has? And what kind of stuff do you get to do? Um, most schools do not have this. Um, right. <laughs> it's a brand new role. Um, I'm the first person in my school to have it. It was something that I really advocated for. Um, my school is pretty amazing. They we say we have three strands of DNA to our school. We have academics, social emotional learning, and difference and inclusion. So the fact that equity work is being held at the same importance as academics, I think, says a lot about my school community. Um, that work is very broad. It's very abstract, and it seemed like it would be really helpful to have a point person um, for some of the organization, particularly around supporting teachers with that work and what it looks like in the classroom. Um, every day I'm in it is a little bit different. Um, some of the things have been, um, direct, like community organizing, like organizing our mix it up at lunch day, um, something that teaching tolerance does where they provide resources for schools to group students differently, just like for a one day year and have kids across different grades and classes, eat lunch together and just make friends and build community. Um, so I organize that. I organize a community day of service learning for the entire school, like TK through fifth grade. Um, wow. Representatives of different nonprofits come in to talk to all of our students about different ways to get involved in the community. So I think a lot of kids 
when they think of community service, just think of like, you know, picking up trash and like donating clothes. But, you know, depending on what your interests and passions are, there's so many ways to give back. Um, and right now kind of pivoting to look at our next school year. So like what kinds of trainings and professional development do our teachers need to support them in difference and inclusion work? Um, and then also grade level and teacher specific coaching. So are you struggling to write lesson plans about these topics or to teach with this particular lens, um, um, offering things like co-teaching or lesson observations, or like I can come teach a lesson in your class and you can observe, um, but just trying to really figure out what are the needs of teachers to make them feel more confident in doing this work independently. That's so great. You say that most schools don't have a diversity coordinator. So if there is... Schools do. Like a lot of schools that can afford it, even though their populations are not as diverse as ours, tend to have them, but a lot of um, public schools seem to not. Right. So if there's a teacher out there that's listening, that's thinking, or a parent that's thinking, okay, my school doesn't have somebody like this, um, and I want one, that sounds really important, how can, how can parents or teachers lobby or organize for this kind of role, even if they think that maybe it's not appropriate for them to do it themselves, but for it to happen? Sure. Um, I think it often depends on the community. Like funding is always going to be an issue. Like where is this person's salary going to come from? Um, those are some challenges I know, like just logistic wise that always have to get hammered out. Um, but I think coming back to that place of asking from a point of like curiosity and wanting to understand that work is being done or I guess if it isn't being done who would be the person responsible for it um, you know would it be the principal would it be an assistant principal or a dean or a teacher um, if you are if you are a teacher I mean I think if you're a parent or a teacher you know power in numbers is always great like if you can form a group with other educators or other parents to really lobby for this type of work and support at a school I think that can also speak volumes fantastic thank you um so apart from being a teacher and diversity coordinator you've got your website teach and transform and your thriving Instagram community on your website, you've got resources and blogs and reading lists and things like that. So I'll be linking all of those in the show notes. Um, what do you think made you take that kind of next step to take it onto Instagram and create that social change through there? I'm really fascinated by the, you know, social media gets such a bad rap, but actually it can be such a powerful tool for creating connections and social change, you know, around these kinds of issues. Um, and I'm wondering how you kind of got started. Um, well, for a number of years, I kind of had sprinkled in some posts about teaching and work and things like that in my personal social media. I kind of figured, A, I would like to have some sort of portfolio where I can keep all of it. And two, man, I bet a bunch of my friends and family are not interested in what I'm doing in my classroom. So I like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that a little bit. Um, but also just like really seeking a community. Um, it was amazing how quickly I realized that there are other teachers everywhere who are doing this work often alone. Um, and just knowing that you are not alone in this work was 
you know, incredibly powerful and uplifting. Like there are such amazing teachers out there who are doing such amazing things with their students and their schools. Um, and I consider Instagram like a type of professional development. Like if I go in for five minutes, I learn multiple things and the way that it's formatted um, I really prefer it to Twitter because I think it's nice to be able to have a visual. You're not confined with a character count. And also with Instagram stories, like, you know, you can talk through things, you can explain things and you can take questions and stuff like that. I find it to be really interactive. So that was Liz Kleinrock. I honestly can't thank Liz enough for her time in chatting with me. As the first teacher to join me on the podcast, it was so valuable to have that discussion. I hope that you, as parents and teachers, have found a lot of value in this episode too. You can find links to Liz's website, Instagram, TED Talk, and lots of other things we talked about in the show notes. See you next time.